1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all-day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6x visit tomboyx.com
1: hi i'm michael Rappaport. and i'm Kibi Rappaport. and together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's reality, reality podcast. podcast
2: we have a passion for reality tv and we're inviting you into our
1: living room we're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today that is right Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today.
2: Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
1: me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today Samantha and I have a bonus episode for you lovely listeners. Bonus. Bonus isn't uh, we always are trying to give you extra content. Extra. <laughs> um so uh, one of my good friends here in the House to Forks office his name is Alex. He's a fantastic person to work with. Um,
4: Alex
3: I like that you're doing this. Yeah, I feel like you're like, you're like my the background. Hype person. I'm gonna do this. <laughs> this is my new role. Okay. I oh my gosh, please follow me around and be my hype person, <laughs> Samantha. Eddie. Yes. Alex is fantastic. And Alex put me in touch with a publicist who represents Dr. Shelley Jane, who is and slash was, depending on when you listen to this, um, coming out with a book called The Unspeakable Mind. And um, since we've been doing this whole mini series, I almost hesitate to call it a mini-series. It's not mini series. I feel like anymore. it's like a series. It's not mini, Yeah, uh, it, it's a medium series. Medium, a medium series. Let's I think series. it's a season. Giant <laughs> it's series. A season. Oh, okay. Um, around trauma, it was perfect because uh, in the book she delves into the science of PTSD and how it doesn't look like what a lot of people think it looks like, and how we can prevent it, how we can treat it, the problems, the solutions, all that stuff. It's an excellent read. I read it in a day. Loved it. Um, so we thought, we, we did an interview. We were fortunate enough to get Dr. Jane on the phone, and we conducted a fantastic interview, and you've probably heard pieces of it in episodes, but we wanted to present The whole thing, lightly edited um, for our our mishaps. Uh, There weren't many, but yeah, no, there was a fire. No, 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 no. There were, you know, there's chicken involved. (laughs) There was chicken involved. That's true. We were eating chicken. It wasn't like a chicken (laughs) in the studio, but um, yeah, we thought we'd present it to you largely unedited as bonus content. So please enjoy. I like to start with uh, a basic question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, please?
5: Sure. Absolutely. So, um, I'm a psychiatrist by training. And about 10 years ago, I um, entered uh, kind of postgraduate training to become a PTSD specialist. And so now um, that is kind of my sub-speciality. I'm a trauma scientist as well. I do research Um, in PTSD and then I treat patients and obviously I'm an educator too, so I'm training a lot of um, young doctors in PTSD and psychiatry. So I spent two decades caring for thousands of patients who have survived uh, various forms of trauma from child abuse, uh, you know, rape, intimate partner violence, life-threatening accidents and war, so that's kind of a little bit about my background.
3: Yeah, and you you discuss in the book how you had this experience with your, your father that kind of led you into this career, if you could speak to that a little bit.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. So on a personal note, you know, I have my own family history is one of trauma and tragedy. Um, so during the 1947 partition of British India, My paternal grandfather was murdered, and my dad was 10 at that time, and he was orphaned and forced to flee his home, you know, live as a refugee in India, and he worked as a child laborer, you know, because, um, uh, you know, there was no other source of income, and both his parents were deceased. Now, two decades later, he ended up emigrating to England, and that's where I was born and raised. So I spent a lot of my life very disconnected from that family history of trauma. You know, we never went back to India, barely, with very little connection. But even though there was that kind of geographical distance, I spent chunks of my youth living in the shadows that partition had cast on his life. And kind of with this awareness as a child that no matter how much I loved him and he loved me, there was a part of him that was always going to be inaccessible. And somehow I feel like as a child, I, I did have this awareness that there was a connection between what happened to him as a kid and why I was feeling this. But it took me many years of training and many years of being a clinician to really figure out, you know, what that was and kind of give it a name.
3: Mm-hmm. And, um you through these these years of experience uh you have written a book, the unspeakable mind <laughs> and congratulations by the way that's that's right. no small feat <laughs> thank you thank
5: you thank you for
3: acknowledging that I, yeah, I don't want to take that for granted right. you you wrote a book that's amazing um so could you talk about what led you to to write th- this book and um yeah, I have. I have. It, I read it in in a day. And I loved it. I think it's very informative. But yeah, I would love if you just talked about like the experience of oh, writing a book and how right. you did it. Right, and
4: then also if you could just add why you felt it was important to add personal accounts to it, because I think that's part of the thing that happens uh, that kind of lacks within all of these types of um, books and sociological ideas that they lack the actual personal background that people often want to connect to. But what made you go that so, route yeah. as well?
5: Well. Well, thanks so much, Annie, for saying you enjoyed the book. That means a lot because it's literally been a ten-year labor of love. So, you know, it, 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 that's what makes me happy. It makes me happy that people who are kind of, you know, a general audience, an educated lay audience, who might not have um, the kind of training um, in in psychology, uh, it, I wanted to reach that audience by writing this book. So, obviously. You know, in my scholarly work, I write all the time, right? You do scholarly papers, you you write up your research, and you're basically preaching to the choir. You're talking to the people who are in your circle. My The thrust behind writing me on SuperMind is I really wanted to reach a wider audience. Um, you know, I think the average person is much more aware about things like you know, the importance of a heart-healthy lifestyle or getting cancer prevention screenings say than they, say they were like 20, 30 years ago. I really feel the time has come where we have to elevate our societal literacy about mental health and trauma and PTSD because we have too much to lose if we don't rise to this challenge. So I wanted to tell the complete story of PTSD in a way that is accessible for anyone who's curious to know more about this condition. And to me, um, You know, I've read a lot of books written by doctor writers. And to me, when they talk about clinical experiences, at my heart, I'm a clinician. That's my primary role. I find I just tap into the material so much easier um, when you go at it from a humanistic point of view, uh, when you go at it from the personal point of view. And definitely for me as a writer, that's how I tap into the material. It's my experiences with people mm-hmm. that make me want to write. So I always naturally, even kind of my process as a writer, I start from that. That is what motivates me to write. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I hope I answered your question. I, I, I wanted to reach a wider audience because I think we have to. PTSD is a pressing public health concern. It's an inextricable part of all of our lives, even if we don't know it yet, it is. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to reach a wider audience, but at the same time present material in a way that that people could digest. You know, that was, was, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to write about trauma. It's hard to read about trauma. But I really wanted to do it in a way that um, would just make people more curious and and help understand a condition that has really been widely misunderstood and kind of eluded throughout history. Um, And then add to that, this fact that the last 20 years has seen such great, research in PTSD. Such wonderful science. And I don't think that people are aware of that. I, I don't think your average doctor is aware of how great science, how much great science has been in PTSD in the last 20 years. And a lot of that has had to do with major world events. Like PTSD has really been put on the map in the last 20 years. And th- there's just some great stuff coming out. I mean, I'm a PTSD specialist. It's my job to stay up with all the stay on top of all the science that's coming out. And it's hard for me to stay on top of it. There's so much of it. So really deconstructing that science and presenting it um, was very rewarding Um, because, as I say, I think people need to know um, what we know about this condition so that we can do more about it.
3: Absolutely. And one thing I want to expound on uh, in that answer is you make the point, you make the case several times in the book that it is a public health issue, if you could Mm -hmm. speak to why that is.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there is this common perception out there that, um, you know, when we think PTSD, the automatic response is to think of military. Mm -hmm. And what we forget is that more than half of Americans will say that at some point in their life, have lived through a major trauma, whether it be, you know, rape or family violence or being robbed at gunpoint or escaping a house fire. I mean, there are so many life-threatening traumas that the average American is exposed to every single day. And we also know that a subset of them will experience multiple traumas. And um, a significant minority of those people will not heal naturally in the aftermath. And what that means is that at any given second, there are 6 million Americans who are suffering from PTSD, like actively suffering. That's a huge mm-hmm. number of people, right? And then if on top of that you're factoring, there's this condition called partial PTSD. It's kind of like being pre-diabetic, you know? Like mm-hmm. you don't quite need the textbook, but that doesn't mean you're not suffering. And there are millions upon millions of more people who we know have partial PTSD. And you know, uh, as you guys probably know, PTSD doesn't live alone. It's often found amongst the depressed, the alcohol and drug addicted, the anxiety-ridden, or suffers a higher risk of death by suicide. So if you think about the collective mental health burden, that is huge. And so right up until this point, I'm just talking about the survivor. Trauma is also infectious. The family members of people with PTSD, they're higher risk of having problems with depression, anxiety, PTSD themselves. So, you know, if you think of the spouses, the children, the parents, this network of people, it's it's a big pressing um, public health concern. And a big problem is is only a third of sufferers get treatment. Mm-hmm. Because it's tough to diagnose, right. it's a challenge to treat, and sufferers often don't want to be reached. You know, the last thing they want to do, oftentimes, is come see somebody like me and talk about the trauma. Right. So in totality, you can kind of see the various dimensions that makes it this pressing public health concern. And, And definitely from my angle as a health services researcher, I think diagnosing it quickly and getting prompt treatment is key. And that is not happening. It's not happening partly because we have such a shortage of mental health professionals, especially in our inner cities, especially in our rural towns. Where often you know the mental health burden is huge.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: um, and that's one thing that you you talk about in the book is um, not only prevention, but in the case that you can't prevent that golden hour. Um, mm-hmm. Could you speak about both of those things?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we think about PTSD, we we rarely think about it as uh, something that can be prevented Um, but I do think that is the way forward. So in the last 20 years we've learned a lot about how to prevent it and there is this fascination from clinicians and scientists about this period called the golden hours. So if you think about that window between when someone's exposed to a trauma, you know, whatever, family violence, sexual violence, combat, and then there's that window between exposure and when they actually develop PTSD. Um, now, we don't know exactly how long that window is, but a lot of people have made very convincing arguments that that is where we have a chance for medical intervention. Um, if we can intervene early in that window, we can set the path toward recovery. Um, and there's some, a couple of real promising interventions. Uh, there's been a lot of use of the stress hormone cortisol in that window to help try and prevent PTSD. And then even kind of psychological therapy. So there's a therapy that works for PTSD called exposure therapy. And some researchers out of Atlanta, actually, out of Emory have, um, yeah, have um, (laughs) uh, um, done a modified form of exposure therapy with trauma survivors right there in the ER, you know, like Mm -hmm. very soon after they come in having survived a trauma, whether it was a car accident or a physical assault or sexual assault. So, so you know, I don't know if the data is ready for prime time. This isn't certainly what we're doing in routine practice, but there's some really encouraging research, and I think that is the way to go. We, we don't spend enough on prevention. Right. In the United States, we, we focus a lot more on treatment, but I think that's the way we need to think about what we can do, either, you know, prevention or early intervention to help people right at this point of trauma. You know, waiting 10, 15, 20 years for people to show up for treatment is not working. Um, so that,
6: that's what makes me excited about
4: prevention, right? And I guess I, I was going to ask with the prevention stuff because I did. You just had a like small like excerpts about um, intimate par- partner violence as well as obviously sexual violence. Is that a part of like maybe predicting within like economic statuses about what is more likely or more risk for those types of violence? Is that part of what you would think would be trying to do preventative treatment? How would you go about yes. that? I mean, what are, would we focus on educating? in specific, like, economic status areas and, like, specific, yeah, like, great. what were your thoughts on how to actually implement yeah, a preventative yeah. and, program? And
5: that's a great question because, I mean, you know, if we could eradicate intimate partner violence, sexual violence, is like, you know, I mean, that would be a miracle. unbelievable. So I think that's a really <laughs> important question. Yeah, but I, I think it takes a village, right. right? And I think systems of healthcare have to re-engineer themselves to really think about this problem. And I think too much historically, um, you know, I mean, obviously you are in the same field so anyone know, preaching to the choir by talking to you about this, but too often the kind of medical system, they don't want to talk about domestic violence. It's right. really messy. They see there's as a, a personal problem or something right. that they don't really know how to respond to, and that culture just has to change. It's, you know, intimate partner violence is a major public health concern as well, it's really common, and a lot of times primary care is where these these victims are going to show up, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and that is a, an excellent opportunity for intervention. Um, the problem is, I, I mean, I think the tide is turning, so there's this excellent work that was done by Kaiser. Um, and they, they published their results in, in the Journal of American Medical Association. And really, they described this effort that they had come up with system-wide to kind of re-engineer their whole system so that they were better set up to identify uh, victims of intimate partner violence, to offer interventions, to um, offer resources, and the whole kind of system from the electronic medical record, to uh, provide education, to organizational buy-in from Mm -hmm. the powers that be, that whole thing was looked at. And that to me is the way to go. You know, it takes a village. I I really believe one provider by themselves is a limit to how much you can do just because of the nature of the problem. It's not only a common problem, it's a difficult problem. And as you point out, a lot of people in these situations also have uh you know, uh, they they have psychosocial problems, you know, they might not have the most resources, they might not have the most money, they might not have access to great health care. And so that compounds an already complicated and difficult problem. You know, they, they call ITV, intimate the it, it, it is called a wicked problem mm-hmm. in that JAMA article. It's it's really difficult to tackle. So I think it, it takes a village and mm-hmm. systems uh, have to be being engineered. The good news is I think we're a better point in a society where people recognize now, you know, we've got to do more for victims of violence. Right. And, you know, in addition to, you know, in addition to treating their physical injuries, we have to provide them pathways for psychological rehabilitation too. You know, I feel like people are more sensitive to now that. Now, compared to say 20 years ago when I was the first doctor, I, I think I think the tide is turning, but we've got to keep at it. Right. Because, you know, it's so easy for these things to of fall off of people's radar just because they're so emotionally taxing to deal with. But, but yes, yeah, systems have to be re engineered, I think. Education takes place
4: at every single level. Right. I and mean, just kind of go with that. You talked at one point about people who are at most risk, and you um, include low income women, which is fascinating because um, I don't think I've directly thought of that as one of the high risk people. But obviously, when you back on what they go through. Yes, they are at high risk. So out of curiosity, what do you think? Because I did see that you wrote about trim as well as peer support. What is the best way that we can actually get services and provide treatment for women and individuals who are in that low income that are not given the privilege of seeking help or being able to afford help?
5: Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. It's really tough. Um, uh, access to care, right? That's right. the biggest barrier. You know, right. um, if you can't have access either because you're uninsured or you um you have uh, you're underinsured, um, you know, that's a luxury. Then that you're going to show up in your doctor's office and tell them about the nightmares you've been having or the new symptoms you've been having. So yeah, I, I worry a lot about those people that we don't even reach. Right. Um, so. From my angle as a physician, that's why access to healthcare, you know, really has to be a right, not a privilege mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the other end, like a societal end, I do think just elevating the conversation about trauma, uh, just so people can kind of connect the dots a little bit and maybe be curious and maybe understand, that's really important because I think the too long... It just wasn't even addressed, right? right? PTSD just was denied, was hidden, was not spoken about. Not because, not kind of intentionally, it's just part of the nature of trauma that your natural inclination is to not think of it. it. It is unspeakable. But I really am encouraged by the fact we're living in a time where I do think the society was kind of getting better. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's a long way to go, but we are, getting better at giving it a name and I can't help feel that that is going to have a good trickle-down effect for everybody, right. but at the same time, it doesn't take away the real problems. I mean, access to healthcare is really, really important and unfortunately, it's just denied to too many and it's denied to the people who really, really need it. Right, you know? right. Um, And that's just a bigger problem for us. We have to think as a society what we want, how we want to care for people who don't have resources. It's a bigger question, it's a policy question, obviously it's a political question. Right. But access is important, and I think from my angle as a psychiatrist, you know, my practice is in primary care. I have moved my practice from a mental health clinic to primary care, because I know a lot of times people who have PTSD, they show up in primary care, they don't come see someone like me. So I do think there's still a lot more that can be done on the medical side, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so, so that takes down a lot of barriers. You know, um, they're seeing a psychiatrist right there in the primary care clinic. Their regular primary care doctors introduce them to the mental health professional. It breaks down a lot of the stigma and a lot of the barriers to access. So there's a lot that can be done on on, on many levels to help folks who are uh, marginalized socioeconomically get access to health. Okay.
3: We have some more of our interview, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: This
4: episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the
3: deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
4: Snagajob is the partner you
3: need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
3: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Well, I was gonna ask you about the the title specifically. You kind of touched on it in there. Um, I don't know if you wanna go into more detail about um the how you came upon the title, what it means.
5: So trauma often represents you know, the violation of everything we hold to be dear and sacred. And so Trauma is simply too terrible to utter aloud. You know, the natural human inclination is to deny trauma its existence. And so trauma becomes unspeakable. Um, You know, sometimes the survivor wants to speak, but if the wider community is unwilling or unable to bear witness to their story, then the survivor is forced into silence. But either way, trauma becomes unspeakable. The problem is we now know definitively that PTSD thrives in such conditions. You know, when traumatic thoughts and memories are unspeakable or unthinkable for too long, they actually interfere with our brain's natural process of recovery after trauma. You know, those memories become step points that inhibit the mental reintegration that is so vital for trauma survivors to heal, so, you know, the unspeakable is is at, at the core of what is the problem with PTSD. Rendering the unspeakable permanently speakable is just crucial to recovery and a really integral part of what we know works for PTSD in terms of trauma-focused psychotherapy.
3: We, um, we have a lot of international listeners, and one chapter that I, I found really interesting is the one about the Americanization of human suffering and your experience at this conference in India, um, I was wondering if you could speak to to that.
5: Um, yeah, very frustrating. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, this isn't a new story. Like, if you talk to some of the pioneers in PTSD research and PTSD treatment. You know, I had a conversation with Charles Mama, who's um, the chair at NYU of psychiatry, and he gave testimony to Congress around the time of the Vietnam War um, uh, about what PTSD is and why we should take it seriously. And all those pioneering, you know, clinicians and researchers faced such resistance. There is something about PTSD that just irks so many people that the same way a trauma survivor might want to deny their trauma, on a societal level, for some reason, people want to deny that PTSD exists. Um, now, I think in America and kind of European and American societies, I think we've, we've, we've done a lot better at, um, you know, kind of giving it a name and um, investigating it so much and understanding it so much that it has become part and parcel of our modern vernacular. Unfortunately, there is this kind of global controversy um, and this kind of theory that's put out there—that somehow PTSD is this kind of Americanization of human suffering—and that um, you know, um, uh, people in low or middle-income countries, they—they're essentially they're, they're they're much tougher than your average American, who's just too whiny. And when they suffer trauma, they have to take on this disorder and kind of take on this victim role. Um, a lot of the, the, the reasons for this controversy was data from this World Mental Health Survey, which came back as showing that rates of PTSD was really low in low- and middle-income countries, like close to 0%. And that's what started this massive controversy, like what's the point of this diagnosis if it doesn't have worldwide relevance? And um, maybe people from low-income countries are more accepting of trauma and that they have this kind of paradoxical resiliency. So, my concern as a PTSD specialist and a trauma scientist is, I think there's probably other explanations for why the World Mental Health Survey data came out that way. Um, And I don't think the explanation lies in the fact that PTSD is just something that Americans experience. I don't think that is the uh, explanation. My biggest concern is that, as you know, a lot of times, the people who suffer the most, they're the biggest brunt of trauma, are winning. Children, the poor, the marginalized groups, they're the ones who have always been hardest hit by trauma. But depending on the laws of the country, they might not actually have a voice to speak up, you know. So uh, so as an example, you know, homosexuality is still illegal in a lot of countries, right? So if you're homosexual and you experience some type of trauma in the context of your sexuality, are you really going to speak up about it? You know, you're basically saying you're a criminal by speaking up by it. And so I do believe that by dismissing PTSD too quickly, um, there's a lot of silent suffering that's going to go dismissed. And of more urgency is if you dismiss PTSD, then doctors are going to stop looking for it. No one's going to pay money to research it, but it's still going to be there. You know, so, so that is a very um, disconcerting argument that is out there and that I wanted to raise awareness about. You know, there's definitely this kind of thing, this Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, right? That, you know, when physical survival is a problem, you know, when you can't guarantee a roof over your head, food over the, uh, on the table, clothes on your back, then psychological well-being does take a back seat. And I'm sure in a lot of low- and middle-income countries, it's too much of a luxury to think about your trauma, too much of a luxury to deal with the psychological symptoms. But I do think it's important. It just takes a back seat. It doesn't disappear, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to remember. It's still there. And I think what's happening is it just gets kicked down the road. You may never deal with it, but then your kids are going to have to deal with it. Someone's going to have to deal with it at some point. Um, so, you know, denying it it is resistance because it's resistance to me is just too too extreme. You know, trauma happens. It happens in every culture and society of the world. We have to get better at identifying victims of trauma and making sure that their voice is heard and if they need psychological rehabilitation, they get it.
3: Absolutely. Um, one thing you, you touched on in that answer is something else that I... Uh, really resonated with me was um you have a chapter on the idea of resilience right. um and how it shifts like <laughs> some days you're stronger than other days um it it's a it's a process that changes. I don't know if you you would mind speaking about that a little bit, yeah, so resilience is just
5: a really interesting word, right? I feel like you get thrown about a lot and You know, people are really praised for their, you know, resilience, And, um, uh, but I think we're not— we're kind of dealing—it's kind of thrown up in a very reductive way. Um, I feel like there is this tendency in our culture to make people into superheroes, you know, like, oh my God, look what happened to this person. They suffered XYZ, but yet they triumphed and they're amazing and they went on to do this and that. And I don't deny that those people exist and I don't deny that we can learn a lot from people like that. I think from the point of view of being a physician and from the point of view of someone who likes to see things from a kind of public health point of view, the opposite problem is much more, you know, there's no point in dealing with like unicorns or outliers. We have a very big problem in that not everyone can access ways to be resilient. And I think we should really think about how we can help everybody be resilient as opposed to making an example of people who are really unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I think doesn't get addressed is, is how much of your resilience is tied to your so- socioeconomic status, right? right yeah. So, you know, if you underwent a trauma and you have really supportive parents or you come from backgrounds where you have access to education or economic means, um, you know, if you have a position of privilege in society, you're going to be pretty resilient just by virtue of your zip code and your geography. And I don't think we give that um, uh, enough—we don't weigh that into the equation enough we like to think it's something inherent to that individual's character. whereas I think a lot of it is to do with socioeconomic factors. And then we don't do the opposite when people are denied that. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't see how, my God, it, as hard as they're trying to be to be resilient, right. that is really weighing them down. So so I think I think a, a, a less reductive way of looking at resilience, a more evolved way of looking at resilience is that it's multidimensional, there's different ways of being resilient, and it, and it waxes and wanes over someone's life. So it depends where you're meeting them on the journey of their life. You know, you may have someone who had suffered a lot of childhood adversity, who had uh, experienced, um, you know, uh, other traumas in their life. Maybe they had been sexually assaulted or or they had, uh, you know, been physically assaulted. And they may come through all of this and thrive and learn to be resilient, but then, Something else might happen later in your life, which is kind of like the store that broke the camel's back, mm-hmm. you know? And you might be meeting them at a later stage in their journey, and you just never know what people have been through.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: So I think to say, oh, you're resilient and you're not resilient, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I think it shifts the time, people's ability to be resilient. So it's multi-dimensional. Um, I think there's many external factors. There's also many inherent factors. You know, PTSD is highly heritable condition. Yeah. So there's a lot to do with the way we're wired and the kind of genes that we have. It also determines our response to trauma. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm all for resilience, but I think we have to look at it uh, in a broader way. Right. And we really have to think about leveling the playing field so that yeah. all people can do resilience, like regardless of the community they're from you know, there's pathways for them to be
6: able to be
4: resilient in the face of trauma. Yeah, actually, can you, um, and I was going to ask if you can talk a little more about the genetic idea, because I don't think we talk about that as uh, a right. thing, honestly, when it comes to PTSD. Everything's so um, environmental, it seems, but in your book, I think it's really fascinating that you go one depth a little more in depth about the genetics as well. So can you talk a little more about that?
5: Yeah, so... So what emerged in the last 20 years is that even though by definition, you know, PTSD is linked to this external traumatic event. So basically, you know, you have to live through a trauma and then you might develop PTSD. So we tend to think of it as, oh, well, it's totally to do with what happens in your life, right? right? But actually what we've realized over the last 20 years is the actual condition itself is highly heritable. So, you know, you you can take two people who will be exposed, exposed to exactly the same trauma. One of them will develop PTSD. One of them won't. And what determines who will and who won't, genetics plays a big part. So, you know, uh, about a third of the overall risk of developing PTSD following exposure to trauma is determined by genetics. And I think that the way that plays out is, you know, the way your brain is wired, the way your body mounts a response to stress, all of which is probably, you know, um, predicted by your genes and factors that, uh, like I said, are heritable. The other thing that is really interesting is um, this epigenetics, the science of epigenetics, which we are still in our infancy of understanding but I think is really fascinating and it's this notion that when a man or a woman is exposed to a really damaging psychological trauma, it impacts the man's sperm or the women's eggs and then these changes are transmitted to their future children by intergenerational transmission. And so that leaves these children vulnerable via altered neurons, neuron acne, and genes. So then these children of these traumatized parents are at risk, even though they themselves may never have been exposed to a traumatic event. Right? I mean, I mean to me, that's just fascinating. So then when you think of cases of mass traumatization, right, when you think of atrocities like Holocaust or genocide or, or slavery or torture, you know, the PTSD imprint can last through generations then, you know? So, again, we're kind of in that intensity of understanding epigenetics, but I really do think... Um, we have to understand the impact of trauma and how long-lasting it can be, and how it can it can have consequences not only for the survivor but for so many people beyond that.
3: Yeah, um, I personally am fascinated with epigenetics, so I'm uh, interested to see where that that research um, goes. We have a little bit more of our interview, but we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Another thing you talk about in the book is how there is this research ongoing into things that you, you are very quick to say there's no magic bullet and people are eager for this magic bullet, but in, like, the cannabis or MDMA. But on the flip side of that, you talk about um, the opioid crisis. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, I would love if you could go into more detail on that. Uh,
5: On the opioid crisis? Yes. So, yeah, so this troubling relationship between addiction and PTSD, um, I mean, that's something I see a lot. Um, So, just the general kind of overall observation that PTSD and addiction go hand in hand a lot, right? So, some studies have reported that over 60% of addicted persons also have PTSD, you know? And Mm -hmm. and you can can understand why, you know, self-medicating with alcohol, drugs, food, gambling, sex, that numbs emotional pain, you know, and it can ease anxiety and it can ease nightmares. The problem is that in the long run, this coping strategy is dangerous, and so often it just morphs into this full-blown addiction. And there is, specifically with regards to the opioid crisis, there is this troubling relationship between PTSD, chronic pain, and opioid addiction. You know, up to 35% of chronic pain patients also have PTSD. And um, there's a condition called fibromyalgia, which is another chronic pain condition. Some people, there have been reports in the literature that some people are kind of saying that PTSD and fibromyalgia are actually the same thing. Wow. So there's definitely something about this physical manifestation of psychological pain that we're really in that of understanding. The problem is that opioid-related side effects you know, things like falls, being in an accident, overdosing or attempting suicide, they're much more common in pain patients who also have PTSD compared to those who only have pain, right? Mm -hmm. So what's kind of emerging is this inkling that when people are using pain pills to numb emotional pain instead of getting treatment for the emotional pain, you know, with psychological treatment, there's something dangerous about that. Right. That's kind of what is emerging. There, there was a couple of big data studies uh, that kind of gave us this bird's eye view of what was happening. And that's the kind of picture that's coming through. And definitely clinically, I feel I see that all the time. Right. I feel I see people numbing emotional pain with prescription pills that are given to them for other reasons. Mm. And it just doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I just don't think
4: that's a solution. So, with that, let me ask you because just off the top of the head, we were talking you, when you were talking about um, PTSD as possibly being a genetic uh, predictor. Do you think it, it's, there's a common link to those who have addictive personalities as well? Because obviously, when you look at addictive personalities, there's a little that's just a little different than your everyday pain medication addiction. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Is there a link between those things, do you think?
5: I'm, I'm sure there is. And it, it goes two ways, right? So people with PTSD, we can see why they might be drawn to addictive behaviors, but it goes the other way too. I mean, you think about, let's say if you take somebody who has an alcohol addiction problem, mm-hmm. right? They're probably more likely to get into accidents. Right. They're probably more likely to be put in situations where they're where they're more at risk of being assaulted. And so... They're more likely to get PTSD as well, right. but, but, but the mechanism, the relationship reversed, right? The addiction makes them more likely to be exposed to trauma, and that makes them more likely to get PTSD. So I think the two are really correlated and mm-hmm. very much interrelated. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's probably some shared gene pathways, I'm sure. Um, I, I don't know of anything definitive, but I feel like um, certainly from a clinician point of view, we see the two go hand in hand. In fact, there's actually been treatments developed. There's one called seeking safety, uh, which, which aims to address both problems at the same time. Oh, wow. You know, trauma and addiction. Right. That's how much of a problem it is that we see all the time with clinicians that, you know,
6: uh,
5: they're both going hand in hand and they both need to be addressed. Um. So, so yeah, I, I don't doubt there's some overlap in terms of, you know what's causing the, the addiction. What's causing the PTSD? I I just don't think we have a very clear idea of exactly what that is.
4: And and just to ask one more one more we're long on that. It's- someone in the field, how often do you see that for people who work in the nonprofit or in sectors like yourself that work with people um, that have to do treatments for PTSD or see a lot of that um, secondary trauma, um, like first responders and such, for the addictive personality as well as the trauma, how often do you see that in um, people who are considered first responders? Because I know many of, I've seen it, social workers get um, caught up in, um psychiatric medication involved after certain situations whether it's let's say a social worker who's working with a mass shooting incident that end up having an addictive personality hand in yeah. hand how right. often do you see that for those type of workers do yeah. so, so I think anybody
5: traumas infectious right? I think anybody who through the course of their profession is routinely exposed to traumatic situations like bearing witness to trauma, whether it be like first responders, whether it be military, whether it be, um, you know, mental health professionals, healthcare professionals, I think we have to recognize it for what it is. We are at high risk of being exposed to trauma. So, you know, the same way we maybe think of like, being exposed to a virus, right? right? Like, you know, all healthcare professionals, we all have to get vaccinated, right? It's heavy and we all have to get our influenza shot. Why? Because we've got a high chance of being exposed to someone who's sick, and we have to inoculate ourselves and protect ourselves so that we don't get sick. So I think we have to think the same way about trauma. Um, I think mental health professionals, we do a bit of a better job about recognizing what's happening to us, Um, recognizing if we're feeling um, troubled by what we're hearing and how it might impact our ability to care for ourselves and care for other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, I feel like I grew up in a tradition where my colleagues are more receptive to me. Talking to them if I'm having a tough time, it's more acceptable for me to acknowledge my feelings. Of course, that doesn't make you safe, but I do feel the culture is accepting. I don't think the wider medical culture or the wider first responder culture, you know, like peace firefighters don't, don't think it is acceptable to admit Right. that you are being troubled by these things and then what happens? People self-medicate, right? right? They turn to addictive substances to self-medicate because just because you don't admit it doesn't mean the pain is not there.
6: Right.
5: Um, so, again, I, yeah, I want to be optimistic. I, I do feel, I mean, there are some really great programs to with first responders now. There's bloody right. to buddy programs, peer programs, where people are accepting that PTSD, it's an occupational risk, right? right. And they're, they're, they're recognizing it, and people are talking about it more, and it has become more acceptable um, for people to uh, be vulnerable, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and say that they're not superhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm encouraged whenever I'm around young people, I'm very encouraged. I feel like the youth are much more in tune with voicing how they are feeling about certain situations. So I, I do feel like there's been a cultural shift, but again, we just have to make it, we have to destigmatize a lot of issues around mental health to make it, to make it just really accessible and make it easier for people to come out and say what's going on so I think not only caring for the people we're trying to serve but caring for ourselves self-care cannot be underestimated underestimated when you're in this line of work
3: absolutely and one of the things um as we're kind of wrapping up here I wanted to touch on and you can totally uh pass on this (laughs) um but (laughs) on a personal note um you've dedicated your life to this um you've written a book You're, it's it's your livelihood um do you are there things that you do have you experienced this secondary trauma and w- what how do you manage it right
6: yeah no absolutely so you know
5: i'm this is like my twentieth year of being a doctor um actually last year about twenty years wow. and, um i You know, I feel like um, as I was reaching that 20-year mark, um, I feel like there was a lot of residues that had been building up. Um, You know, in your clinical experiences day-to-day when you're trying to take care of patients, you know, there's there's what happens in real time, right? You meet them, you make an assessment, make a diagnosis, you come up with a treatment plan. But there is so much that happens in that visit there are so many other dimensions that get touched on, moral, ethical, philosophical, mm-hmm. emotional, psychological, not only for the patient, but for me too. And they often don't get dealt with in real time, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have time to deal with everything. You, you have to kind of do the work that needs to be get done to kind of get things moving. Um, you know, and um, when those other dimensions do not get attended to, I think, Um, issues start to build up, and it's like a stubborn kind of residue or a stubborn stain. You know, you start to lose your shine, Mm -hmm. and uh, when I was writing this book, The Unspeakable Mind, I was reaching that 20-year mark of being a doctor, like I said, and I think for me, writing the book really allowed me to go through this process of paying attention to that residue, and leaving it all on the page. Um, There's definitely something burning inside of me that needs to get out. And I think from a kind of creative angle, being able to draw on 20 years of clinical experiences and kind of relive them and hash them out through the process of writing um, was really valuable. Um, I felt like I could leave a lot of stuff on the page. I think I emerged feeling lighter, more rejuvenated, and um, hopeful that, you know, maybe I can do this for another 20 years. Um, so, so for me, in answer to your question, I think the writing is what helps me personally. Well, Let me ask you this. Um, I came to love, Yeah.
4: I, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
5: Because no, I just, go I, ahead, go I
4: think what you what, when you were talking about having to essentially stabilize someone and can't hit on every note and, and feeling like for me, I've had many incidences where I've had to do crisis management only and then walk away and then things fall apart because mm-hmm. I couldn't do everything I felt needed to be done. And mm-hmm. I, I call this survivor's guilt or just guilt in general. Like, and I know I, I read something about um, in your book about how you talked about. People who feel guilty for feeling, for feeling like they're having an emotional trauma, even though they survived, um, and things uh-huh. like that. How do you cope with that? How, like, for those of us that are in this profession that don't always have the time? Because um, I work with the uh, investigating child abuse, and I work with at-risk teens. How? do you go on and not get that burnt out, not giving up hope and, and feeling like, how do I get this? Because I didn't get to do this, this, and this. And now things have fallen apart in different ways and yeah. I just feel guilty. Yeah. How do we go with that? Right. How do we cope with that?
5: So, so one thing I don't think we do enough of in this world, and I, I feel this, I've felt this be eroded over the last 20 years of being in this profession. What, one thing I don't think healthcare professionals, and caregivers, what we don't do enough of is just admit that what we do is really, really hard, right? What the work we do and the circumstances under which we operate are really hard. Um, and I do feel like we live in this world that celebrates the trivial and that um, uh, doesn't uh, value Doing complicated things where you're not necessarily going to get a massive return on your investments. Um, so, I think there's this cultural tone where we have to reclaim that what we do is important, must be done, but it's really, really hard. So, I think setting these re- realistic expectations mm-hmm. is really important. Um, I, I am a realist, I, I'm a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it's because I'm an immigrant, I don't know if it's because I'm the door of an immigrant, but I, I don't think I'm an optimist. I feel like I'm a realist. I'm a pragmatist. And I think that helps keep me grounded because I set my expectations accordingly. Um, and I know that sometimes I'm not able to help people in the minute,
6: mm-hmm.
5: right? But that doesn't mean that something you have not said to them or something you have not done for them won't help them future down the line. And you may not be there to witness that. Right. So, so we must keep trying right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like setting realistic expectations in when we're living in a world that is so undermined and so obsessed with so many things that are trivial is really hard. So I, I think that is really important, recognizing that how important it is what we do, the impact that we have on people's lives. And then I think the other thing is, to me, I feel like most of the mental health professionals I know, most of the healthcare professionals I know, the ones who are really, really good at their job, they probably started doing that role way before they got their actual qualification. Right.
4: <laughs>
6: Everybody needs right. right. yeah. um,
5: The ones who are really passionate and connected to what they do, they're working something else through to... Return. And so I, I think we have to acknowledge that, right? right? Like how much of you, how much of what you're feeling, how much of the survival guilt that you're feeling is about the current situation, how much of it has to do with something else. And then of course, that's what's really important. You have your own ways of caring for yourself and getting any, any attention that you might need, you know, mental health wise, um, you know, uh, Health-wise, and so self-care, I think, is an absolute non-negotiable if you're going to do this type of work. Right. Um, But it's not an easy. I mean, your question is a really important one because you know we're dealing with record levels of burnout in our profession right right now. So clearly, this is not imagined; it's very real. (laughs) But to me, I feel like you know your career should be a marathon. Right. right? You want to be here twenty years from now, thirty years from now. You don't want to be burning out and not Mm -hmm. able to help people. And um and, and you have to do what it takes to be able to have that longevity and have that stamina.
6: Right.
5: You know? And and I, I feel like healthcare professionals who are kind of congenital caregivers, they they don't take care of themselves the way they should.
2: Right.
5: You know, they, they they put other people's needs too much and they think there's something to be said for having boundaries and saying, Okay, all right, I'm done for the day and I'm not gonna take this home and right. I'm gonna do something for myself. But you know, by doing something for yourself, you you're you're going to survive another day to do something for somebody else. So it's not being selfish. It's, it's having healthy boundaries. But, you know, I mean, I I can talk this way, but it is an ongoing battle. Right. We're all trying to figure it out day to day what to do. How to do it. You know? Right. Yeah.
3: I think um, <laughs> that's a great wrap-up point. Unless you have something else you want to touch on, we'll obviously give you a chance to plug your... Book and where people can find you. But if there's anything else you want to speak to before that, now's the time.
5: No, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. I'm so, um, it's so awesome for me to talk to people who have read the book. And um, I really hope it was valuable to you. And that, that makes me really happy. So it was all worth it. All the hard work is worth it.
3: <laughs> yes. And congratulations again. Yes. Like, I don't want to sweep under the rug. You wrote a book. Um, It was very well researched, very well written. I was going to say, you you wrote a book that
4: was readable, (laughs) like not just for people who um, are fascinated by trauma and all of the research, but actual story, personal telling and and some new ideas. And then I love that. That's so um, available for people. And I love that.
5: That's awesome! Thank you. It's really nice to hear that. I mean, it was a labor of love. Like, <laughs> you know, it took me ten years, but that's amazing. but
3: if, if that was the result that I wanted, and if that's what's happening, it was totally worth it. Perfect. So, thanks so much for sharing that feedback. It really means a lot. Awesome, yeah. So, if you want to just uh, shout out the book, and uh, I th- when it comes out, I believe it's in April. Uh, yeah, you you yeah, take it's, it, it's and great. then all of your
4: yeah, uh, all of your social medias, so we can get to you.
5: Yeah, so it's um it's called The Unspeakable Mind, Stories of Trauma and Healing from the Frontlines of PTSD Science. And it's published by Harper, and it's coming out May 7th of this year, 2019. And folks can find me on Twitter at MD, and I'm also on Facebook, and my website is Com.
3: Awesome! Thank you so much for for doing this, it's and thank been you for your really patience. Lovely.
6: Yes, yes, <laughs> that's what that we try to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> that's <too. laughs> you. No problem. Yeah,
5: happy Friday. The weekend, like we needed the weekend. Right. right. So, Absolutely. No All right. Thank Thanks you so folks. much. Have a great day. You no too. Problem. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
3: Bye. Bye. That brings us to the end of our interview with Dr. Jane. I hope that you found it as enjoyable and as informative and therapeutic. as therapeutic. did. Yes, as therapeutic. Please go check out her book. Like I said, it was very, um, it was an uh, informative and easy read. Like, I don't, uh, easy is not necessarily the word I want to use, but Readable. for something that is that kind of complex and deep, it was very digestible digestible
4: very just like the chicken we had in the
3: studio and the, and the macaroni and cheese oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah we were very hungry um but yeah thank you so much to her for joining us thank you to you Samantha to me yes as always Thank you to Andrew Howard, our producer. Andrew, eat some chicken. Yes, and thank you listeners for listening. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at Stuff Never Told you. Thanks again for listening.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Rapport, and I'm kiwi Rapport, and together we're hosting Rapport's Reality Podcast. Reality podcast.